0: Hear us in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to read uh, with you from Malachi chapter 4. We're going to read the entire chapter, which is uh, just six verses. And Malachi 4 ends with the last promise of God that we find in the Old Testament. There we read these words Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave to him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I mentioned, this morning we're going to be starting a new series, uh, an Advent series, which is going to lead us up into Christmas. And so again, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke, you might know that it is a Gospel that is written to a man named Theophilus. And we're told in the opening verses that it is written to Theophilus in order that he might know with certainty the things which he has been taught. It's written in order that he would believe. But what does that actually mean? What actually is faith? Well, I think you could say that at its, at its most basic level, faith is simply trusting in the promises of God. And the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, everybody is trusting in something. Everybody is building their lives on something. And so Luke is writing to Theophilus, and he's opening up the Scriptures And he's calling him to build his lives on the promises of God. And he's demonstrating to him that we serve a God who both makes promises and who keeps those promises. And so over the next few weeks, we're just going to walk through some of the different promises of God. So I invite you to to look down at Luke chapter 1, verse 5. The text will also be projected overhead. There we read these words. In the time of Herod, king of Judea... And he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent, and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was complete, he returned home after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, some of you know, One of the things that I like to do in my spare time is I like to read biographies. And I enjoy in particular reading the stories of men and women who have given their lives in the service of Christ. I just find that there's something incredibly encouraging and rewarding about this. And I find that God uses actually the testimony of their lives to provide perspective for my own life. Now, one of my favorite biographies that I've ever read is the biography of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a 19th century missionary who served just over 50 years of his life uh, in China. He established what was called uh, the China Inland Mission. And during the course of his time there, he called over 1,000 missionaries to China. It's said that during his ministry, he baptized over 50,000 people. Hudson Taylor was a man that God used in extraordinary ways. But this is the quote that has always stuck with me from Hudson Taylor. He said, God is not looking for men of great faith. He is looking for common men to trust his great faithfulness. I think that's such an important truth for us to grasp. Because I think that often we think that God is looking for extraordinary people. And we think that God is looking for people with this extraordinary faith. And then we look at ourselves and we we think, well, I'm pretty ordinary, I'm pretty average, and in fact, if I'm honest, sometimes I actually have just a, a weak faith. But the fact is that God's not looking for extraordinary people. God is looking for regular people, broken people, weak people, who trust in his great faithfulness. And that's what I love about the stories of the Bible. The Bible is just full of these stories of regular people. People like you, people like me. And today, we encounter two of these people. Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're not perfect people. They are, in fact, regular people who are simply learning to trust the promises of God. And sometimes that can be hard, because sometimes it feels like God has forgotten his promises. And I think sometimes it feels like God has forgotten us. And so this passage this morning is meant to encourage us and to remind us that God will always remember even when we don't necessarily feel it. And so I want to consider that truth this morning, that God will always remember. I want to look at three things this morning. The fact that this truth offers comfort in our pain, confidence in our prayers, and conviction in God's promises the text begins, the text begins with these words. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, the the, the text establishes this as something that occurs under the reign of Herod, who would be known as Herod the Great. Herod ruled over uh, the region of Judea from about 37 BC to about 4 BC, and he is known uh, probably best for the remarkable building projects that he took on. And of all those building projects, probably the most famous was the expansion and the restoration of the temple of God. Herod's temple was massive. It was incredibly impressive. And so if you were someone who would have visited Jerusalem in that time, and who would have walked the city, you you might have thought that things were going incredibly well for the people. When in fact, this was one of the most painful periods the people of God. And that's because their land, their their promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to their forefathers, this land was under the control of Rome. It had been conquered by, by the massive Roman Empire. And so their God, who had promised to dwell with them and to be their God and that they would be his people, that God seemed to have forgotten about them. It had been over 400 years since God had last spoken through the prophet Malachi. There was this deafening silence. And over the course of those 400 years, there were many people who had given up their faith. There were many people who had begun to doubt God, who had begun to doubt His promises. But then today we're introduced to this couple. This couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're told that they come from priestly families. Zechariah from the family line of Abijah. Elizabeth from the family line of Aaron. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. And Elizabeth's name means my God is an oath or perhaps my God has sworn. And they live out The truth of those names. They are a couple who is walking by faith. They're trusting in the promises of God. And they do that despite facing remarkable personal hardship. Because we're told that Elizabeth is not able to conceive, they're not able to have children. And from a Jewish perspective, This meant that you had no one to carry on the family line. And what that meant is that you had no one to claim your inheritance. You had no one to claim your place in that promised land. This must have been such a burden on their hearts. Here you have this couple. And they've devoted Themselves to the service of God. They've given their lives to God. And yet they can't have this one thing that they want most. And I think this passage reminds us that sometimes, for reasons that we will never understand, God calls faithful people to walk a road of hardship and pain. And I couldn't help but think about that this past week when I read about the story of young Jude Strickland. This 11-year-old boy who was struck and killed on his way home. He's the son of Pastor Jamie Strickland from uh, West Highland Baptist and his wife, Vanessa. I couldn't help but think, here you have this family. They too, they're, they're, they're striving to be faithful. They've devoted themselves to the service of God. And yet they're called to carry this immense personal burden. And it doesn't seem to make sense. I read these words on Pastor Jamie Strickland's Facebook wall this past week. He said, we are finding solace in the fact that Jude is now with Jesus and has entered into the joy of his master. One day, by faith, we will go to be with him again. This is the hope our faith in Christ gives us to journey through this immense sorrow. I think those are the words of a regular man, a broken man who in his pain can do nothing but cling to the promises of God and trust in his great faithfulness. This is about learning to walk by faith and not by sight, even when things don't make sense. And I think that's the kind of heart that God wants to cultivate in all of us a heart where in our struggles and in our pain and in our hardship, in our adversity and in our loss, where we learn to lean deeply on the promises of God. I mean, that's what you see in the stories of the Bible. Right? You think about Noah, who's called to build an ark in the middle of nowhere you imagine the ridicule that he faced? It makes no sense. And he's learning to rest in the promises of God. You think of Abraham, right? God shows up to this 75-year-old man. And here's what God says to him in Genesis 12, God says, "I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I mean, listen to those promises. They sound amazing. And yet, 24 years later, Abraham is still waiting, and he's still childless. And he's learning to trust in the promises of God. And even when he does have a son, this son named Isaac, we read later about how God comes to him and God says, Abraham, I need you to go and I need you to sacrifice your son, your one and only son. And you go, God, that doesn't make sense. And he's learning to trust in the promises. And when God sees that Abraham is willing to give up even his son, his one and only son, then God reaches out and says, stop. just a regular man who was learning to trust in the promises of God. And that kind of trust doesn't happen overnight. Instead, often that kind of trust is forged and it is shaped in the fires of adversity. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you're walking through a time of great pain and a time of great adversity. And you're wondering, you know, how do I know that God is with me during this time? Because sometimes it does seem like God has forgotten His promises. And sometimes it does seem and it feels like God has forgotten you. And this passage is meant to encourage you and to remind you that God will always remember, even when you don't necessarily feel it. You go, how do I know? And the answer is Jesus. God's faithfulness to you is so deep and so strong that He was willing to give up even His Son. His one and only Son. And so if you're walking through that valley and you're looking for something to cling to, then you need to look to Christ. Christ died to prove that God truly does love you with an immeasurable love, even when you don't feel it. Christ died to to prove that God really will give you a hope and a future that He will restore your joy and one day make your joy complete even when you can't see it. The Apostle Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, he says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That is the truth of the gospel. God will always remember. And that offers us some comfort, something to cling to, in our pain. So God will always remember, which also offers us confidence in our prayers. In Zechariah 8 and 9, sorry, in Zechariah, in Luke 1, verse 8 and 9, we find Zechariah. And we're told that one day while he's uh, serving in the temple, that he's chosen by Lot uh, to go and to burn incense uh, in the temple. And I want to to pull up a picture of the temple to kind of give give you a a sense of the scene. This is kind of a restoration of what Herod's temple would have looked like. It was massive. This temple, to give you some idea, would have spanned about 25 football fields. And what you see in, in, in the outer area is this massive courtyard within the outer walls. This was the courtyard of the Gentiles. This was a place where those who were not Jews could go. And they were able to offer sacrifices in that area. You could buy and sell animals. There was exchange of money that happened there. If you look closer to the center, you see that there's a smaller courtyard that's also walled off. This was an area that was specifically for the Jews, where only the Jews were allowed to go. And then if you look even within that courtyard, the center courtyard, you see that there's this tall structure, which was called the Most Holy Place. And within that building, there were two different rooms. There was the back room, which was walled off by this giant curtain. It was called the Holy of Holies. This was where the Ark of God was. This was where the presence of God dwelt within the temple. Now, the high priest, and only the high priest, was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. He was only allowed to do that once a year. But the room before that was called the Holy Place. And that was the place where twice a day, one of the priests was allowed to go to offer this incense. Now the challenge was that there were 18,000 priests during that time. Each one would serve for two weeks a year in the temple. And so you were chosen by lot in order to have this privilege. Privilege. So, you have to think about Zechariah, who's gone here year after year. For a priest, this is the great privilege. There's no greater honor than to be able to go in and to represent the people before God. And this day, as they're casting the lot, the groups are getting smaller and smaller. And he's thinking, maybe this is my year. And sure enough, it is. He's chosen by lot. In priestly terms, this is like winning the lottery. Right? This is the great privilege. It was such a great privilege that you were actually only allowed to be chosen once in your lifetime. And so Zechariah goes in. And I have to imagine just that feeling of entering into the presence of God. And he's there and he burns the incense and he's praying. And all of a sudden we're told that an angel appears and Zechariah is terrified. And I think justifiably so. Right? And so Gabriel, the angel, says to him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. There's a lot of questions asked about, well, what's he praying for? Sometimes we think that he's praying for a son. He's praying for a child. But I think that's highly unlikely and it's unlikely for a couple of reasons. One is simply the fact that they're so old. This is something that realistically was not going to happen anymore. The second is just simply the context. The fact that the great privilege that you had of being chosen was that you got to go in and you got to represent the people. That's what you were there for. You were there to offer your incense and to pray and to plead with God before the people. And so what Zechariah is doing is he's praying for the people of God. And he's praying that that God would uh, send this Redeemer, that God would send the Messiah, that He would send this King that the people have been waiting for. Right? He's praying the promises of God. And in many ways, that's, that's actually what prayer really is. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. There's only one today. But he says this the best praying person is the one who is most familiar with the promises of God. After all, prayer is nothing but taking God's promises to him and saying, Do as thou hast said. Prayer is the promise utilized. And that's exactly what Zechariah is doing. And God's response is amazing. God answers the last promise of the Old Testament by giving the first promise of the New Testament. Earlier we read from from the prophecy of Malachi. And in the closing verses we read about this day of destruction that's coming. But there's this promise that one day there will be this prophet like Elijah who will come and who will turn the hearts of the children to the parents and the hearts of the parents to the children. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, that prophet is going to be your son. He says to him, you're going to bear... You're going to have a son and you're going to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's going to be consecrated. There's going to be no wine, no fermented drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born and he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And then notice here the echo of Malachi. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah would have recognized those promises. And it had been over 400 years since God had spoken. But Gabriel was reminding him that God always hears our prayers, And God always remembers his promises. So I want to ask you this morning, do you pray confidently? Do you pray with confidence? I have to confess that I think sometimes this is a struggle for me. Probably because I'm impatient. I sometimes feel like I have a three strikes and you're out approach to prayer. Right? God, well, I've prayed for this once, I've prayed for this twice, I've prayed for this three times, and it's clearly not happening. And I think we need to remember that God always hears our prayers. And God always remembers His promises. But we also need to learn to accept that He's going to answer them in His time and not ours. And maybe you say this morning as well, well, how do I know? How do I know that God hears my prayers? And again, the answer is Jesus. Right? Jesus died so that you would have access to God. And we're told that when Jesus died, that that curtain which hung in front of the Holy of Holies, that it was torn in two. And that was a picture of the fact that through Jesus, by the power of his spirit, each and every believer has access into the very presence of God. Think about this what Zechariah got to enjoy once in a lifetime, we get to enjoy every single day. And that ought to shape our approach to prayer. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Church, let's not waste the privilege of prayer. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who've who've been given access into the very presence of God, let's pray and let's pray confidently. Let's pray the promises of God. Let's use that time of prayer to do the thing that Zechariah did, to intercede for others, to pray and to plead with God to be faithful and to do the things that only He is able to do. Let's pray the promises of God, but let's also be willing to accept that God will do that in His time and in his way. And so God will remember, which gives us confidence in our prayers. Let me close with this. God will remember, which gives us conviction in God's promises. And this conviction, I think, sometimes is hard. And part of the reason why it's hard is because God's promises sometimes seem too good to be true. I think that's the issue for Zechariah. Zechariah in his day is looking around and he's looking at the, the land that's occupied by Rome. He's looking at simply the reality right, that they've been conquered by this massive empire. And so he hears the promises of God about how God is going to redeem and restore and how God is going to turn back a, a, a people and he's going to be, have a people prepared for the Lord. And it also, it just sounds too good to be true. And not only does God say that He's going to redeem the people, but God says that He's going to redeem him. Right? God's going to give him this child. They're going to have a family and a family line, a son. God says that you will receive that inheritance. And you will keep your place forever in that promised land. And it just sounds too good to be true. And so Zechariah asked the question, Zechariah asked the question, how can I be sure? How can I know with certainty? I think this passage reminds us that even faithful people sometimes struggle with the promises of God. This passage reminds us that even faithful people sometimes have doubts, times where their faith is weak, times where we we feel like God can redeem others, but we're not sure if God can redeem us. I think we sometimes look at our scenario and we, we look at just the, the evil and the sadness and the sorrow and the struggles and the pain and the hurt that you see in the world around us, and we we read about the promises of God that one day there's going to be this new heaven and new earth and Christ is going to come back and He's going to establish a new kingdom where there's going to be no more suffering and no more pain and no more sorrow. And some days it just seems too good to be true. Or you hear the promises of God that He so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. And then we look at ourselves and our struggles and our weaknesses and our flaws. And we think, well, maybe God can redeem others, but I'm just not sure if he can redeem me. This past week I was reading the story of um, Alec Manassian and the trial of Alec Manassian. He's the the guy who perpetrated the, the Toronto van attack where he drove and killed 10 people and injured 16 others. And while he's been waiting for trial, he's been reading the Bible. He's been reading about the the promises of God and about the the forgiveness of sins. But they seem almost too good to be true. He said in an interview recently that he considers himself to be 99% irredeemable. And I wonder if we sometimes feel like that. Or if we look at our situation, our life, our context, and we feel like that. The brokenness that we're experiencing, the struggles, the flaws, and we look at the promises of God and I think we want to believe them. We we want to hold on to them. We want to trust. We want to believe. But sometimes our question is the exact same question as Zechariah. How can I be sure? Sure. And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the reason that you can have conviction in God's promises. Jesus is the reason that you can have conviction that God will redeem you. The cross and the empty tomb are the sign that God really does love you. And that God will redeem and he will restore you and he will restore your joy. And one day he will make your joy complete. God's faithfulness to his promises in the past are what give us conviction about his promises for the future. And I think sometimes we need God to do to us what he did to Zechariah. We need God sometimes to silence our mouths so that all we can do is listen. Sometimes we also need to learn to be still and know that He is God. We need to learn to look back at the things He's done to give us conviction about the things that He will do. God's not looking for extraordinary people. He's looking for regular people like you and me who trust in His great faithfulness. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 23, says it this way, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And that's exactly what you see in this story. God does remember his promises. And Elizabeth does become pregnant. And she provides the answer, the only answer that you really can give. She says, the Lord has done this for me. And I think that's the testimony that God wants from all of our lives. God is able to reconcile and restore broken relationships. God is able to set us free from addictions. God is able to carry us through times of unimaginable pain and sorrow. And God is able to take people who are dead in their sins and to redeem them and to bring them from death to life And the only thing He wants from us is to believe and to say, the Lord has done this for me. Let's pray. Father, this morning again in Your Word, we are confronted with the truth that You are a God who is faithful. You are a God who will always be true to Your promises. And we pray that you would help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, we know that so often our faith is weak. So often we struggle and we have doubts. So often we think that we need to be extraordinary when we simply need to trust that you are extraordinary. That you are able to do things that are far beyond what we can possibly imagine. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for proving that love in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that even in the hardest times of life and in the difficulties that we face, we have something that we can hold on to. The knowledge that there is hope and a future and a time where we will see Jesus face to face where we will be crowned with glory and in your presence. And that's what we hold on to.